the wicked, useful in their destruction only, a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Ezekiel 15, verses 2 to 4. Son of man, what is divine tree more than any tree, or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Shall wood be taken thereof to do any work? Or will men take a pen of it to hang any vessel thereon? Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. The fire devoureth both the ends of it, and the midst of it is burned. Is it meat for any work? The visible church of God is here compared to the vine tree, as is evident by God's own explanation of the allegory in verses 6 to 8. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, As the vine tree among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so will I give the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and so on. And it may be understood of mankind in general. So Deuteronomy 32, verse 32, Their vine is a vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. And especially his professing people. Psalm 53, verse 8, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Verse 14, Look down from heaven, behold, and visit this vine. In Canticles 2, verse 15, The foxes have spoiled the vines for our vines have tender grapes. Isaiah 5, My beloved hath a vineyard, and he planted it with the choicest vine. Jeremiah 2, verse 21, I had planted thee a noble vine. Hosea 10, verse 1, Israel is an empty vine. So in chapter 15 of John, visible Christians are compared to the branches of a vine. Man is very fitly represented by the vine. The weakness and dependence of the vine on other things which support it will represent to us what a poor, feeble, dependent creature man is, and how, if left to himself, he falls into mischief and cannot help himself. The visible people of God are fitly compared to a vine because of the care and cultivation of the husbandman or vine dresser. The business of husbandmen in the land of Israel was very much about vines. And the care they exercised to fence them, to defend them, to prune them, to prop them up, and to cultivate them, well represented that merciful care which God exercises towards His visible people. In the words now read, is represented how wholly useless and unprofitable, even beyond other trees, a vine is in case of unfruitfulness. What is a vine tree more than any tree? or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest. In other words, if it do not bear fruit. Men make much more of a vine than of other trees. They take great care of it, to wall it in, to dig about it, to prune it, and the like. It is much more highly esteemed than one of the trees of the forest. They are despised in comparison with it. And if it bear fruit, it is indeed much preferable to other trees, for the fruit of it yields a noble liquor, as it is said in Jotham's parable, Judges 9, verse 13, And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine, which cheereth God and man? But if it bear no fruit, it is more unprofitable than the trees of the forest, for the wood of them is good for timber. But the wood of the vine is fit for no work, as in the text, shall wood be taken thereof to do any work? Or will men take a pen of it to hang any vessel thereon? The only thing for which a vine is useful, in case of barrenness, is for fuel. 
Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. It is wholly consumed. No part of it is worth a saving to make any instrument of it for any work. Doctrine. If men bring forth no fruit to God, they are wholly useless, unless in their destruction. For the proof of this doctrine, I shall show, number one, that there can be but two ways in which man can be useful, either in acting or in being acted upon. Number two, that man can no otherwise be useful actively than by bringing forth fruit to God. Number three, that if he bring not forth fruit to God, there is no other way in which he can be passively useful but in being destroyed. Number four, in that way he may be useful without bearing fruit. One, there are but two ways in which man can be useful, either in acting or being acted upon. If man be useful, he must be so either actively or passively. There is no medium. What can be more plain than that if a man do nothing himself and nothing be done with him or upon him by any other, he cannot be any way at all useful? If man do nothing himself to promote the end of his existence, and no other being do anything with him to promote this end, then nothing will be done to promote this end, and so man must be wholly useless, so that there are but two ways in which man can be useful to any purpose either actively or passively, either in doing something himself or in being the subject of something done to him. Number two, man cannot be useful actively any otherwise than in bringing forth fruit to God, serving God and living to his glory. This is the only way wherein he can be useful in doing. And that for this reason, that the glory of God is the very thing for which man was made, and to which all other ends are subordinate. Man is not an independent being, but he derives his being from another, and therefore hath his end assigned him by that other. And he who gave him his being made him for the end now mentioned. This was the very design and aim of the author of man. This was the work for which he made him, to serve and glorify his Maker. Other creatures that are inferior were made for inferior purposes. But man is the highest and nearest to God of any in this lower world, and therefore his business is with God, although other creatures are made for lower ends. There may be observed a kind of gradual ascent in the order of different creatures from the meanest clod of earth to man, who hath a rational and immortal soul. A plant, an herb, or tree is superior in nature to a stone or clod because it hath a vegetable life. The brute creatures are a degree still higher, for they have sensitive life. But man, having a rational soul, is the highest of this lower creation, and is next to God. Therefore his business is with God. Things without life, as earth, water, and so on, are subservient to things above them, as the grass, herbs, and trees. These vegetables are subservient to that order of creatures which is next above them, the brute creation. Therefore food to them. Brute creatures, again, are made for the use and service of the order above them. They are made for the service of mankind. But man, being the highest of this lower creation, the next step from him is to God. He therefore is made for the service and glory of God. This is the whole work and business of man. It is his highest end, to which all other ends are subordinate. 
if it had not been for this sin, there never would have been any such creature. There would have been no occasion for it. Other inferior ends may be answered as well without any such creature as man. There would have been no sort of occasion for making so noble a creature and enduing him with such faculties, only to enjoy earthly good, to eat and to drink, and to enjoy sensual things. Brute creatures without reason are capable of these things as well as man. Yea, if no higher end be aimed at than to enjoy sensitive good, reason is rather a hindrance than a help. It doth but render man the more capable of afflicting himself with care, fears of death, and other future evils, and of vexing himself with many anxieties, from which brute creatures are wholly free, and therefore can gratify their senses with less molestation. Besides, reason doth but make men more capable of molesting and impending one another in the gratification of their senses. If man have no other end to seek but to gratify his senses, reason is nothing but an impediment. Therefore, if man be not made to serve and glorify his Creator, it is wholly to no purpose that such a creature is made. Doubtless, then, the all-wise God, who doth all things in infinite wisdom, has made man for this end, and this is agreeable to what he hath taught us in many places in the Scriptures. This is the great end for which man was made and for which he was made such a creature, having bodily senses and rational powers. For this is he placed in such circumstances, and the earth has given him for a possession. For this he hath dominion given him over the rest of the terrestrial creatures. For this the sun shines, and the rain falls on him, and the moon and stars are for signs and seasons to him, and the earth yields him for her increase. All other ends of man are subordinate to this. There are indeed inferior ends for which man was made. Men were made for one another, for their friends and neighbors, and for the good of the public. But all these inferior ends are designed to be subordinate to the higher end of glorifying God, and therefore man cannot be actively useful otherwise and be by actively bringing forth fruit to God, because that is not actively useful which does not actively answer its end. That which doth not answer its end is in vain, for that is the meaning of the proposition, that anything is in vain. So that which doth not actively answer its end is as to its own activity in vain. That as to its own activity is altogether useless, which actively answers only subordinate ends without answering the ultimate end, because the latter is the end of subordinate ones. Subordinate ends are to no purpose, only as they stand related to the highest end. Therefore these inferior ends are good for nothing, though they be obtained, unless they also obtain their end. Inferior ends are not aimed at for their own sake, but only for the sake of that which is ultimate. Therefore he that fails of this is as much to no purpose as if he did not obtain his subordinate end. I will illustrate this by two or three examples. The subordinate end of the underpinning of a house is to support it, and the subordinate end of the windows is to let in the light. But the ultimate end of the whole is the benefit of the inhabitants. Therefore, if the house be never inhabited, the whole is in vain. The underpinning is in vain, though it be ever so strong and support the building ever so well. The windows also are wholly in vain. 
though they be ever so large and clear, and though they obtain the subordinate end of letting in the light, they are as much in vain as if they let in no light. So the subordinate end of the husbandman is plowing and sowing, and well, and well manuring his field is, that it may bring forth a crop. But his more ultimate end is, that food may be provided for him and his family. Therefore, though his inferior end be obtained, and his field bring forth ever so good a crop, yet if after all it be consumed by fire, or otherwise destroyed, he plowed and sowed his field as much in vain as if the seed had never sprung up. So if man obtain his subordinate ends never so fully, yet if he altogether fail of his ultimate end, he is holy and useless creature. Thus if men be very useful in temporal things to their families, or greatly promote the temporal interest of the neighborhood or of the public, yet if no glory be brought to God by it, they are altogether useless. If men actually bring no glory to God, they are, as to their own activity, altogether useless, how much soever they may promote the benefit of one another. How much soever one part of mankind may subserve another, yet if the end of the whole be not answered, every part is useless. Thus if the parts of a clock subserve ever so well one another, mutually to assist each other in their motions, one will moving another ever so regularly, Yet if the motion never reached a hand or the hammer, it is altogether in vain, as, as much as if it stood still. So one man was made to be useful to another, and one part of mankind to another. But the use of the whole is to bring glory to God, the Maker, or else all is in vain. Although a wicked man may, by being serviceable to good men, do what will be an advantage to them, to their bringing forth fruit to God... Yet that serviceableness is not what he aims at. He doth not look so far for an ultimate end. And however this be obtained, no thanks are due to him. He is only the occasion and not the designing cause of it. The usefulness of such a man, being not designed, is not to be attributed to him, as though it were his fruit. He is not useful as a man, or as a rational creature, because he is not so designedly. He is useful as things without life may be. Things without life may be useful to put the godly under advantages to bring forth fruit, as the timber and stones with which his house is built, the wool and flax with which he is clothed, but the fruit which is brought forth to God's glory cannot be said to be the fruit of these lifeless things, but of the godly man who makes use of them. So it is when wicked men put the godly under advantages to glorify God, as Cyrus and Artaxerxes and others have done. Number three, if men bring not forth fruit to God, there is no other way in which they can be useful passively but in being destroyed. They are fit for nothing else. Number one, they are not fit to be suffered to continue always in this world. It is not fit that this world should be the constant abode of those who bring forth no fruit to God. It is not fit that the barren tree should be allowed always to stand in the vineyard. The husbandman lets it stand for a while till he digs about it, dungs it, and proves it to be incurable, or till a convenient time to cut it down come. But it, but it is not fit that they who bring forth no fruit to God should be suffered to live always in a world which is so full of the divine goodness, or that his goodness should be spent upon them forever. This world, though fallen and under a curse, has many streams of divine goodness, 
But it is not fit that those who bring forth no fruit to God should always be continued in partaking of these streams. There are three different states. One wherein is nothing but good, which is heaven. Another wherein is a mixture of good and evil, which is the earthly state. And the third wherein is nothing but evil, which is a state of eternal destruction. Now they that bring forth no fruit to God are not fit for either of the former. It is not fit that an unprofitable, unfruitful creature, who will not glorify his Creator, should always live here to consume the fruits of divine bounty, to have the good things of this life spent upon him in vain. While a man lives here, the other creatures are subjected to him. The brute creatures serve him with their labor and with their lives. The sun, moon, and stars, the clouds, fields, and trees all serve him. But why should God always keep his creatures in subjection to that man who will not be subject to him? Why should the creation be always kept in such bondage as to be subject to wicked men? The creatures indeed are made subject to vanity. God has subjected them to wicked men and given them for their use. This, however, he would not have done, but as it is only for a little while, and the creatures can bear it through the hope of approaching deliverance, otherwise it would have been intolerable. Romans 8, verse 20, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. The creature, as it were, groans by reason of this subjection to wicked men, although it be but for a while. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth, and traveleth in pain together until now. Therefore surely it would be no way fit that wicked men who do no good and bring forth no fruit to God should live here always to have the various creatures subservient to them as they are now. The earth can scarcely bear wicked men during that short time for which they stay here. It is no way fit, therefore, that it should be forced to bear them always. Men who bring forth no fruit to God are cumberers of the ground. Luke 13, verse 7. And it is not meet that they should be suffered to cumber the ground always. God cannot be glorified in this way of disposing of unfruitful persons. If such men should be suffered to live always in such a state as this, it would be so far from being to the glory of God that it would be to the disparagement of his wisdom to continue them in a state so unsuitable for them. It would also be a disparagement to his justice, for this is a world where all things come alike to all, and there is one event to the righteous and to the wicked. If there were no other state but this for wicked men, justice could not possibly take place. It would also reflect upon the holiness of God. Forever to uphold this world for a habitation of such persons, and forever to continue the communications of his bounty and goodness to them, would appear as though he were disposed to countenance and encourage wickedness. Number two, if men do not bring forth fruit to God, they are not fit to be disposed of in heaven. Heaven, above all others, is the most improper place for them. Everything appertaining to that state is unsuitable for them. The company is most unsuitable. The original inhabitants of that world are the angels. But what a disagreeable union would that be to unite wicked men and angels in the same society? The employments of that world are unsuitable. The employments are serving and glorifying God. How unsuitable, then, would it be to plant barren trees in that heavenly paradise, trees that would bring forth no fruit to the divine glory? 
The enjoyments of heaven are unsuitable. The enjoyments are holy and spiritual. The happiness of beholding the glory of God and praising His name and the like. But these enjoyments are as unsuitable as can be to the carnal, earthly minds of wicked men. They would be no enjoyments to them, but on the contrary, would be most disagreeable, and what they cannot relish but entirely nauseate. The design of heaven is unsuitable to them. The design of God in making heaven was that it might be a place of holy habitation for the reward of the righteous and not a habitation for the wicked. It would greatly reflect on the wisdom of God to dispose of wicked men there, for it would be the greatest confusion. But God is not the author of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14.33 It would be contrary to the holiness of God to take wicked men so near to himself, into his glorious presence, to dwell forever in the part of that creation which is, as it were, his own palace, and to sit at his table. We read in Psalm 5, verse 4, Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. Therefore it would be impossible that the end of the existence of wicked men should be answered by placing them in heaven. Number four, men who bring forth no fruit to God may yet in suffering destruction be useful. Although they be not useful by anything they do, yet they may be useful in what they may suffer, just as a barren tree, which is no way useful standing in the vineyard, may be good for fuel. God can find use for the most wicked men, he hath his use for vessels of wrath as well as for vessels of mercy. Second Timothy 2, verse 20. In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. I shall briefly take notice of some ends which God accomplishes by it. Number one, unfruitful persons are of use in their destruction for the glory of God's justice. The vindictive justice of God is a glorious attribute as well as His mercy, and the glory of this attribute appears in the everlasting destruction and ruin of the barren and unfruitful. The glory of divine justice and the perdition of ungodly men appears wonderful and glorious in the eyes of the saints and angels in heaven. Hence we have an account that they sing praises to God and extol His justice at the sight of the awful judgments which He inflicts on wicked men. Revelation 16, verse 5 and 6, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou was judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. In Revelations 19, verses 1 and 2, And after these things I heard a great voice saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Number two, unfruitful persons in their destruction are of use for God to glorify his majesty upon them. 
the awful majesty of God remarkably appears in those dreadful and amazing punishments which he inflicts on those who rise up against him. A sense of the majesty of an earthly prince is supported very much by a sense of its being a dreadful thing to affront him. God glorifies his own majesty in the destruction of wicked men, and herein he appears infinitely great, and that it appears to be an infinitely dreadful thing to offend him. How awful doth the majesty of God appear in the dreadfulness of his anger! This we may learn to be one end of the damnation of the wicked. From Romans 9, verse 22. What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? This is a part of His majesty and glory. God tells Pharaoh that for this cause He raised him up, that He might show His power in him, that His name might be declared through all the earth in His destruction. Exodus 9, 15 and 16, and again, chapter 14, verse 17, I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his host, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. Number three, the destruction of the unfruitful is of use to give the saints a greater sense of their happiness and of God's grace to them. The wicked will be destroyed and tormented in the view of the saints and other inhabitants of heaven. This we are taught in Revelations 14, verse 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And in Isaiah 66, verse 24, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. When the saints in heaven shall look upon the damned in hell, it will serve to give them a greater sense of their own happiness. When they shall see how dreadful the anger of God is, it will make them the more prize His love. They will rejoice the more that they are not the objects of God's anger, but of His favor, that they are not the subjects of His dreadful wrath, but are treated as His children, to dwell in the everlasting embraces of His love. The misery of the damned will give them a greater sense of the distinguishing grace and love of God to them, that He should from all eternity set His love on them, and make so great a difference between them and others who are of the same species, and have deserved no worse of God than they. What a great sense will this give them of the wonderful grace of God to them, and how will it heighten their praises? With how much greater admiration and exaltation of soul will they sing of the free and sovereign grace of God to them? When they shall look upon the damned and see their misery, how will heaven ring with the praises of God's justice towards the wicked and His grace towards the saints? And with how much greater enlargement of heart will they praise Jesus Christ, their Redeemer, that ever he was pleased to set his love upon them, his dying love, and that he should so distinguish them as to shed his blood and make his soul an offering to redeem them from that misery and to bring them to such happiness. With what love and ecstasy will they sing that song in Revelations 5, verses 9 and 10? Thou art worthy, for thou wast slain 
and has redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every tongue and kindred and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests. One end which the apostle mentions why God appointed vessels of wrath is the more to make known the wonderfulness of his mercy towards the saints. In Romans 9:22 and 23, there are two ends mentioned. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction? That is one end. Another is mentioned immediately after. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Application number one. Hence we may learn how just and righteous God is in the destruction of those who bring forth no fruit to him, seeing there is no other way in which the end of their being can be obtained. Certainly it is most just that God should thus dispose of them. Why should he be frustrated of his end through their perverseness? If men will not do the work for which he hath made and fitted them, if they through a spirit of opposition and rebellion refuse, why should God suffer himself to be disappointed of his end in making them? It doth not become his infinite greatness and majesty to suffer himself to be frustrated by the wickedness and perverseness of sinful worms of the dust. If God should suffer this, it would seem to argue either a want of wisdom to fix upon a good end, or a want of power to accomplish it. God made all men that they might be useful, and if they will not be useful in their conduct and actions, how just is it that God should make them useful in their sufferings? He made all men for his own glory, and if they, contrary to the revealed will of God, refuse to glorify him actively and willingly, how just is it that God should glorify himself upon them? Men are under no natural necessity of being put to this use of glorifying God in their sufferings. God gives them opportunity of glorifying Him and bringing forth fruit, puts them under advantages for it, and uses many means to bring them to it. But if they will not be useful in this way, it is very just that God should make them useful in the only remaining way in which they can be useful, in their destruction. God is not forward to put them to this use. He tells us that he hath no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that wicked turn from his evil way and live. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. He represents the destruction of sinners as a work to which he is backward. Yet it is meet that they should be destroyed, rather than that they should be suffered to frustrate the end of their being. Who can blame the husbandman for cutting down and burning a barren tree after he hath digged about it and dunged it and used all proper means to make it fruitful? Let those among us consider this, who have lived all their lives hitherto unprofitably and never have brought forth any fruit to God's glory, notwithstanding all the means that have been used with them. Consider how just it would be if God should utterly destroy you and glorify himself upon you in that way. And what a wonderful patience it is that God hath not done it before now. Number two, this subject ought to put you upon examining yourselves, whether you be not wholly useless creatures. You have now heard that those who bring forth no fruit to God are, as to any good they do, wholly useless. 
Inquire, therefore, whether you have ever done anything from a gracious respect to God or out of love to Him, seeking only your worldly interest, or for you to come to public worship on the Sabbath, to pray in your families and other such things, merely in compliance with the general custom, or that you be sober, moral, and religious, only to be seen of men, or out of respect to your own credit and honor, is not bringing forth fruit to God. How is that for God, which is only for the sake of custom, the esteem of men, or merely from the fear of hell? What thanks are due to you for not loving your own misery, and for being willing to take some pains to escape burning in hell to all eternity? There is not a devil in hell but would do the same. Hosea 10, verse 1. Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. There is no fruit brought forth to God where there is nothing done from love or true respect to him. God looketh at the heart. He doth not stand in need of our services, neither is he benefited by anything that we can do. He doth not receive anything of us but only as a suitable testimony of our love and respect to Him. This is the fruit that He seeks. Men themselves will not accept of those shows of friendship which they think are hypocritical and come not from the heart. How much less should God, who searches the hearts and trieth the reins of the children of men? John 4:24. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Inquire, therefore, whether you ever did the least thing out of love to God. Have you not done all for yourselves? Zechariah 7, 5 and 6 When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did ye at all fast unto me, even unto me? And when ye did eat, and when ye did drink, did ye not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Application number three. Another use of this subject may be of conviction and humiliation to those who never have brought forth any fruit to God. If, upon examination, you find that you have never in all your lives done anything out of a true respect to God, then it hath been demonstrated that, as to anything which you do, you are altogether useless creatures. And consider what a shameful thing it is for such rational beings as you are, and placed under such advantages for usefulness, yet to be wholly useless, and to live in the world to no purpose. We esteem it a very mean character in any person that he is worthless and insignificant, and to be called so is taken as a great reproach. But consider seriously whether you can clear yourselves of this character, set reason to work. Can you rationally suppose that you do in any measure answer the end for which God gave you your being and made you of a nature superior to the beast? But that you may be sensible what cause you have to be ashamed of your unprofitableness, consider the following things. Number one, how much God hath bestowed upon you in the endowments of your nature. God has made you rational, intelligent creatures, hath endued you with noble powers, those endowments wherein the natural image of God consists. You are vastly exalted in your nature above other kinds of creatures here below. You are capable of a thousand times as much as any of the brute creatures. 
He has given you a power of understanding which is capable of extending itself, of looking back to the beginning of time, and of considering what was before the world, and of looking forward beyond the end of time. It is capable of extending beyond the utmost limits of the universe, and is a faculty whereby you are akin to angels, and are capable even of knowing and contemplating the divine being, and his glorious perfections manifested in his works and in his word. You have souls capable of being the habitation of the Holy Spirit of God and His divine grace. You are capable of the noble employments of angels. How lamentable and shameful is it that such a creature should be altogether useless and live in vain. How lamentable that such a noble and excellent piece of divine workmanship should fail of its end and be to no purpose. Was it ever worthwhile for God to make you such a creature, with such a noble nature, and so much above other kinds of creatures, only to eat and drink and gratify your sensual appetites? How lamentable and shameful to you that such a noble tree should be more useless than any tree of the forest, that man, whom God has thus set in honor, should make himself more worthless than the beasts that perish. Number two, how much God hath done for you in the creation of the world. He made the earth and seas and all their fullness for the use of man. Psalm 115, verse 16, The earth has he given to the children of men. He made the vast variety of creatures for man's use and service. Genesis 1, 28, Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. For the same purpose he made all the plants and herbs and trees of the field. Genesis 1, 29. I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. He made the sun and the heavens, that glorious luminary, that wonderful globe of light to give light to man and to constitute the difference between night and day. He also made the moon and the vast multitude of stars to be to him signs and seasons. What great provision hath God made for man! What a vast variety of good things for food and convenience to put him under advantages to be useful! How lamentable is it, then, that after all these things he should be an useless creature! Number 3. How much is done for you in the course of God's common providence! Consider how nature is continually laboring for you. The sun is, as it were, in a ferment for mankind, and spending his rays upon man to put him under advantage to be useful. The winds and clouds are continually laboring for you, and the waters are going in a constant circulation, ascending in the air from the seas, descending in rain, gathering in streams and rivers, returning to the sea, and again ascending and descending for you. The earth is continually laboring to bring forth her fruit for your support. The trees of the field and many of the poor brute creatures are continually laboring and spending their strength for you. How much of the fullness of the earth is spent upon you? How many of God's creatures are devoured by you? How many of the lives of the living creatures of God are destroyed for your sake, for your support and comfort? Now how lamentable will it be if after all you be altogether useless and live to no purpose? What mere cumberers of the ground will you be? Luke 13, verse 7. Nature, which thus continually labors for you, will be burdened with you. 
This seems to be what the apostle means, Romans 8:20 20 and 21 and 22, where he tells us that the creation is made subject to vanity and brought into the bondage of corruption, and that the whole creation groans and travails in pain under this bondage. Number four, how much is done for you in the use of the means of grace? How much hath God done to provide you with suitable means and advantages for usefulness? How many prophets has he sent into the world in different ages, inspiring them with his Holy Spirit, and enabling them to work many miracles to confirm their word, whereby you now have his written word to instruct you? How great a thing hath God done for you to give you opportunity and advantage to be useful in that he hath sent his own Son into the world? He who is really and truly God united himself to the human nature and became man to be a prophet and teacher to you and other sinners. Yea, he laid down his life to make atonement for sin, that you might have encouragement to serve God with hopes of acceptance. How many ordinances have been instituted for you? How much of the labor of the ministers of God has been spent upon you? Is not that true concerning you which is said, Isaiah verse 5, of the vineyard planted in a very fruitful hill and fenced and cultivated with peculiar care and pains which yet proved unfruitful? How much hath the dresser of the vineyard digged about the barren tree and dunged it, and yet it remains barren? Number five, consider what a shame it is that you should live in vain when all the other creatures inferior to you glorify their Creator according to their nature. You who are so highly exalted in the world are more useless than the brute creation. Yea, than the meanest worms are things without life, as earth and stones. For they all answer therein, none of them fell of it. They are all useful in their places, all render their proper tribute of praise to their Creator. While you are mere nuisances in the creation and burdens to the earth, as any tree of the forest is more useful than the vine if it bear not fruit. Number four, let me, in a further application of this doctrine, exhort you by all means to bring forth fruit to God. Let it be your constant endeavor to be in this way actively useful in the world. Here consider three things. Number one, what an honor it will be to such poor creatures as you are to bring forth fruit to the divine glory. What is such a poor worm as man that he should be enabled to bring forth any fruit to God? It is the greatest honor of his nature that God has given him a capacity of glorifying the great Creator. There is no creature in the visible world that is capable of actively glorifying God but man. Number two, in bringing forth fruits to God you will be so profitable to none as to yourselves. You cannot thereby be profitable to God. Job 22, verse 2, Can a man be profitable to God? And though thereby you may be profitable to your fellow creatures, yet the fruit which you bring forth to God will be a greater benefit to yourselves than to any one living. Although you are under a natural obligation to bring forth fruit to God, yet He will richly reward you for it. In requiring you to bring forth fruit to Him, He doth but require you to bring forth fruit to your own happiness. You will taste the sweetness of your own fruit. It will be most profitable for you in this world, and the pleasure will be beyond the labor. Besides this, God has promised to such a life everlasting rewards, unspeakable, infinite benefits, so that by it you will infinitely advance your own interests. Number three, 
If you remain thus unprofitable and be not actively useful, surely God will obtain his end of you in your destruction. He will say concerning the barren tree, Cut it down! Why cumbereth it the ground? Christ, John 15, verse 6, tells us, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. This is spoken of the barren branches in the vine. How would you yourselves do in such a case with a barren tree in an orchard, or with weeds and tares in your fields? Doubtless, if it were in your power, you would utterly destroy them. God will have his end. He will not be frustrated. Though all men and devils unite their endeavors, they cannot frustrate God in anything. And though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished. Proverbs 11, verse 21. God has sworn by His great name that He will have His glory of men, whether they will actively glorify Him or not. Numbers 14, 21, 22, 23. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoke me see it. The axe lieth at the root of the trees, and every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Matthew 3, verse 10. The end of those men who bring forth nothing but briars and thorns is to be burned, as in Hebrews 6, 7, and 8. For the earth which bringeth in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. So we read of the tares, Matthew 13, verse 30, Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. And in verses 40 and 41 and 42, As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So it is said of the chaff in Matthew 3, verse 12, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his weed into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. If you continue not to bring forth any fruit to the divine glory, hell will be the only fit place for you. It is a place prepared on purpose to be a receptacle of such persons. In hell, nature ceases to labor any more for sinners. There they will have no opportunity to consume the fruits of divine goodness on their lusts. In hell there will be no ordinances, no Sabbath, no sacraments, no sacred things for them to profane and defile by their careless and hypocritical attendance, but unceasing woe for their abuse. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at 
www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.